Praise God. It goes without saying just how much work the hours that was put into Christ-exalting worship. It stirred my heart, and I want to thank you for that. It's beautiful. Would you join me in a word of prayer? To ask the question if you are worthy or not. Lord, forgive us that we even wonder at times. You deserve all of our praise. You deserve all of our affection and attention. And we want to give that to you this morning. We want to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to guide our hearts. And that you would minister to us through the power of your very spirit. Encouraging us and speaking to us, Lord, as you know we need it. We gather here as one, but we each have our own stories. Lord, we come into this place with different things that have brought us here and for different reasons. And for the high points and the low points, wherever we are, Jesus, we trust that you who are alive will meet us right where we need to be met. It's in your precious name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, shared experiences, clearly, as we know this morning, can be experiences, they're just better shared experiences than experiences had alone. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if you've ever been in this situation, and to kind of prove this point, how many of you have tried to retell a story or a moment or a funny situation, and you're sharing that with somebody who wasn't there, and as you finish telling the story, the moment, the funny situation, they look at you with just this glazed stare. <laughs> and you just can't help but respond by saying, well, I guess you just had to be there. Right? This is what I mean. Shared experiences just allow the moment to feel fuller. Because as you recall the moments later on, the memories themselves just become so much more dynamic from the vantage point of the other people there with you. And the funny thing is, is that even if you recall these moments differently later on, those differences, they just seem to add greater emphasis upon the actual moment. The differences don't really detract from the memory. If anything, they just add greater value to it. So for example, one of my closest friends in the world, he's, he's like a brother to me. We grew up since we were little babies. We, we have a shared moment with two very distinctly different vantage points. The story involves the two of us with his younger sister. Uh, we're traveling up near Hayward, Wisconsin. We're in a car and we spot crossing the road what I would call like a, a smallish black bear. It wasn't a cub, but it wasn't some grizzly. And so we proceed to pull the car off to the side of the road to just get a better look. Now, from my vantage point, recalling the story, as we stop, Troy proceeds to get out of the car and chase this bear clapping across the road. But from Troy's vantage point, he recalls the story of us pulling the car off to the side of the road, and then I get out of the car and proceed to clap and chase the bear across the road. Now, let me ask you all a question. Do I really look that stupid? <laughs> now, don't answer that question. This isn't, this isn't audience participation time. But here's the thing, right? Our vantage points in that story were different, yet two things remained true. Number one, not only does this moment still become a fuller experience for the two of us, because we shared it together and we joke and laugh over it together, but, our, but despite the differences, the emphasis remains on the actual moment. 
and that is that a car stopped, we were in it, we wanted to get a closer look at the bear, and somebody chased the bear. Like, who chased it doesn't really matter. It was Troy, by the way. <laughs> is that on recording? That's, that's good, okay. It's, it's forever in place now. The point is that the facts remained the same. It didn't really matter who chased it. Someone chased it, but there was a car. We stopped, and there was a bear, and this is the, the story. Now, all of this relates to Easter because the most significant moment to ever occur with perhaps the most diverse collection of different vantage points was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the implications of this marvelous moment has literally split history from B.C. to A.D. And it's a moment that not only impacted those who were there, but it continues to impact countless millions to this day. And from that point of the resurrection, the church was launched, societies were transformed, and lives forever changed. The resurrection's significance is that it validates the ministry of Jesus. Few dispute the virtue and the ethic of Jesus. All of us here, those who may be watching and throughout the world, it is a common confession among most that Jesus was a great teacher, he was a great prophet, he was a great moral authority. In fact, Jesus among the world is so esteemed, even within some of the most religious and philosophical movements, he is a common thread among all of these things precisely because of Jesus's ethic of love thy neighbor. I mean, who doesn't affirm that? Almost everybody does. But the resurrection validates the ministry of Jesus, which means that the significance of the empty tomb brings consequential weight to everything Jesus ever said and did. Now, adding to the layers of this consequential weight are the unique vantage points of the people who watched and listened and observed and considered the life and ministry of Jesus. So from his closest followers, to the curious spectators, to the misguided Roman officials, to the insistent Jewish rulers, everyone had their eyes fixed on Jesus. Think about that. And their vantage points make the significance of the resurrection even more marvelous. Despite the competing interests among these various groups of people, their intent and their interest with Jesus only heightens the drama of the remarkable, and that is that the tomb is empty. Take, for instance, the vantage point of the Pharisees. Here is an influential religious group within Judaism, and they looked at Jesus, and they affirmed the, effect, uh, the effects of his good works. And this makes sense because as Pharisees, this was a group that was often far more devoted in the exterior and in the appearance of doing good things. They were often more concerned with how they looked to others than genuine heart transformation, at least in relationship to their walk with God. And it was from their point of view, listen to how they saw Jesus. In John 10, verse 33, it reads, For a good work we don't stone you. We don't want to put you to death because of what you're doing. In fact, like us, you seem to be doing on the external a lot of good things. That's not why we want to kill you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In other words, there was absolutely no confusion whatsoever how this religious group saw and understood the claims of Jesus. 
They weren't misunderstanding. They were actually seeing it and hearing it quite well, which makes a lot of sense. And it also then helps explain the vantage point of what I call the curious spectators. We saw them, for instance, last week, if you were a part of Palm Sunday, these curious spectators were like what we see in John chapter 12, verse 13, where a large crowd is gathering as Jesus nears Jerusalem. People are waving palm branches and they're throwing their coats and robes down on the floor as, a, as an act of worship. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so what we see with Palm Sunday is this group of people who represent what appears to be a growing sentiment among the crowds. And they're observing not only Jesus' works, but his words. And they're beginning to see how these things are adding up to something uniquely different. Now, another major player within the story of the resurrection was the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire during the days of Jesus had occupational control of the land of Israel and in Jerusalem. And Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor. And when he was confronted with Jesus, he, he drew a conclusion that Jesus was a king. It reads, for example, in John 18, verse 33, Pilate entered into his chambers and he summoned Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, where would Pilate get that conclusion? Pilate would have had no motivation or interest to know who this kind of Jesus guy was from Galilee. So clearly, his understanding of this conclusion was drawn from the fact that other people were saying it. And so Jesus asks, is this true? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, what's significant is that as Pilate continues to enter into conversation with Jesus, he himself begins to formulate his own conclusion. And we find and hear this conclusion in John 19, 14, when Pilate presents Jesus before the crowds, and he says this, Behold, your king. What he had heard, he had experienced, and then concluded, Jesus, your king. Now, to the entire Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the decision-making religious body of the Jews. And their unanimous indictment about Jesus, their vantage point was this in Luke 23. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now that word Christ is a word that has its origin in the biblical text from the Hebrew language, speaking of one who is anointed referring to a Messiah, referring to the one who is going to come and deliver and save the nation of Israel, which in turn, as an anointed one, makes him a king. So you have the Sanhedrin, represented by a sect or a group known as the Pharisees, drawing conclusions about what this man is claiming. Again, no confusion whatsoever. Now, for those who are Jesus' closest followers, his disciples... Their vantage point was perhaps most unique of all. They lived with Jesus, heard everything, saw everything during his three years of public ministry on earth. And it's the apostle Peter who perhaps offers the clearest confession of what it was that they saw in Jesus. And Peter says this in John chapter 6, beginning in, <clears throat> in verse 68. Lord, <clears throat> to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, each of these groups experienced Jesus from different vantage points, didn't they? They each had their own unique vantage point. But this variety doesn't detract from Jesus. If anything, these differences offer greater value to Jesus because clearly what we see from their observation is that Jesus was somebody different. God, King of Israel, Christ, the Holy One, offering eternal life. These vantage points suggest that while the universal appeal of Jesus loving thy neighbor is an ethic that is beautiful and worthy to pursue, it is the resurrection that adds consequential weight to everything Jesus ever said and did. The resurrection also impacted these groups differently. Let's begin by looking at the Jewish officials and the Roman governor. In Matthew chapter 27, Beginning in verse 62, there's this really interesting exchange that happens between the Pharisees and Pilate. And we see this beginning in verse 63. <clears throat> it reads, sir, this is the Pharisee speaking, uh, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Now it's interesting when you think about it because Jesus at this point in the story is dead. He's dead. And if they never really took the man seriously, they should have been satisfied in the end result of his death. And yet clearly they're taking into consideration the weight and the reality of not just his words, but how up to that point his works dramatically influenced what it was he was saying. And so they, right, still speaking in terms of his present reality, is saying, let's make sure if this is true, it doesn't become truth. And so, uh, to be on the safe side, they ask in verse 64, will you give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day? That's what he said. Let's just, let's just dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's. And so Pilate responds in verse 65 saying, go make it as secure as you know how. So the Pharisees and Pilate, they had every reason and they had every motivation to make sure that Jesus' previous claims remained as dead as he was. They weren't worried, friends, about Jesus' words, love thy neighbor. That's not what scared them. They were worried about these words. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the, re res all right, forgive me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what bothered them. This is the consequential weight that comes with the empty tomb. What Jesus' life and ministry affirmed more than love thy neighbor was God's love for a sinner. 
You see, the different vantage points looking at the life of Jesus testified to one important thing. Jesus was completely changing the paradigm and the resurrection proved its effectiveness. See, no longer did you have to fulfill obligations and rules to get to God. No longer did you have to rely upon some institution or some priest to stand on your behalf to say that you were worthy enough to be with God. No longer did you have to work and muster up your own sense of righteousness to be able to feel like you could prove your worth to God. Jesus changed the paradigm from religion to a relationship by coming to us knowing we could never get to him. The Pharisees and the Roman officials, they didn't know what to make of Jesus, but one thing they did know, one thing they knew was that he claimed to be God which means that his rule and his dominion would extend over everything, including death. This is why, as it claims in Matthew chapter 27, they wanted a Roman seal placed over the tomb with added guards for reinforcement. And still, and still, despite the penalty of death, for anyone who broke the seal and despite the penalty of death, for any soldier that vacated his assignment, still... The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. So what's the explanation? Did the disciples simply make the story up? I mean, we already know the vantage point of the Sanhedrin and the Roman officials. I mean, think about this, friends. It would be a greater act of faith to believe that a small band of uneducated fishermen could overtake Roman soldiers or fabricate a story without the intervention of these high-ranking officials. And why? Because as soon as word got out that Jesus was still living, if that wasn't really the case, as soon as word got out, these high-ranking officials with influence, power, and money could have pointed people to the tomb. And if it wasn't just pointing people to the tomb, they could have given added explanation for all the extra measures they took to make sure that he stayed in the tomb. But they couldn't do that. It says, for example, in Luke 23, verse 50, and a man named Joseph from Arimathea was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. My point in sharing this is that where Jesus was located was not a mystery to anybody. Joseph, being a wealthy and righteous man, had a place reserved for himself and his family. This was not some situation where the body of Christ was secretly and quietly taken away in the evening. It would have been prominently known where this great place was located. So to the degree that a story could be fabricated that Jesus rose, to the same degree the story could be proved false, and yet, and yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, living in a world where the graves of Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and Joseph Smith are known, yet Jesus is not here. More importantly, we must account for the vantage points of the curious spectator and of Jesus' closest followers. How did they experience? What, what, what was the resurrection to them? 
Well, in Acts chapter 2, for instance, Acts is a wonderful book that tells of the moments of the church as it grew from the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 2, it tells us that literally thousands of people were coming to accept and believe that Jesus was, in fact, God and Savior of all. Just days after the resurrection, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that following Jesus' resurrection, he himself appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, many of whom are still living up until now. So Jesus' tomb was clearly known. The Jewish ruling council and the Roman officials took great steps to ensure that he stayed dead. And literally hundreds of people, even at the time of Paul writing some 30 years later, Paul is saying, a lot of them are still alive. Go ask them. Go verify their story. They had personally experienced the living Christ. Now, on top of this, you had the massive growth of the church with an increase in hostile persecution. And yet, and yet, it kept growing. These different vantage points don't detract from Jesus. They only add greater value to the singular truth that the tomb is empty. And if the tomb is empty, friends, that means that everything Jesus ever said and did is true, and it must be believed. It must be believed. It means that Jesus is eternally God. It means that Jesus is the perfect gift of God. It means that Jesus is the righteous substitute for your sins and mine. And it means that in dying, Jesus put to death the judgment of death. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You see, the resurrection is our eternal confirmation that Jesus is God. That he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that by placing your faith and trust in him, you can come to have everlasting life. The tomb is empty, which means your sins are forgiven. There's nothing you could ever do to earn your salvation, but there is something you can do to receive it. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Through a confession of sin, meaning a humble acknowledgement and a dependence on him that you cannot save, that no one in your family can save you, that your upbringing and background can't save you, that your education, your influence, your power, your finances can't save you, through a humble dependency on him and him alone, and through the profession of faith that he is Lord and Savior, you can be saved. The Bible puts it this way, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible in 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I want to invite our team to come up this morning as they lead us in a final song of worship in just a moment. And as they make their way up, let me add this one important point. The resurrection is our eternal confirmation that Jesus is God. 
And as such, Jesus changed the paradigm from religion to a relationship because he knew we could never get to him. So God in Christ came to us. The question, friends, is will you consider Jesus this morning? Will you consider the marvelous gift of his life? And will you enjoy the certainty of knowing with hope that you can live forever in righteousness before the throne of God? Tomorrow is never guaranteed, but what we do have is today, and what we do have is now, and what we do know is the tomb is empty. Will you consider Jesus? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done and all that you continue to do and all that you will forever do. You are the sacrificial lamb. And we will forever know what you have done for us. Even in eternity, we will worship out of this marvelous truth that you exchanged the throne room of glory and placed upon yourself the humility of flesh. And in becoming like us, you identified with us and you took our sin upon you and you became a perfect sacrifice. But that necessary work that you accomplished for me and for us was affirmed through the conquering of death. And so we delight in the hope that we have because the tomb is empty. Death could not hold you. The grave could not contain you. And so it's the living Jesus we worship today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're so delighted that you could be with us in worship this morning. Let me just share this final blessing with you today. From 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So go today in the confidence of knowing that Christ Jesus, our Lord, is alive and he reigns perfectly over all things, including the last enemy, death. So consider Jesus, friends, and live in that confidence. You are dismissed.